So it's, oh, it's come, come to, to this. this. Hey, that actually worked. That kind of did work. It was we, a, it was kind of louder than I expected it to be, but we, it, it worked. <laughs> yeah, we both went for our loudest ever take. I think we... Uh, Just really enthusiastic about it. We're here to celebrate. It's a party. It is a party. <laughs> I don't think... Did you have any idea it would get this far? I didn't think it would Be come honest. to this at all. You th- what What do you think <laughs> no, when I we started know. this? What did I what, think? What's an honest-to-God guess on how many episodes? You know, I didn't think we'd keep count, honestly, if, so if not I'm going to put it that way. So, like, infrequently enough it'd be like, to only... Uh, it'd be like, yeah, we got it going on. We're talking about uh, episode numbers. This is our, our 50th episode. That's why it's such a big deal. And uh, it seems like feels, a good number. 50 feels huge to me. In, like, a year. I mean, we've only, you know, we've only missed maybe two or three weeks here and there throughout the year as far as putting these out. These have been coming out weekly for... Yeah, we did only miss, I think, three weeks. Here and there, every every now and, and that's then, through, and like, that's through like natural disasters. We're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, we survived some fires. I think last there's fall. fires. Yeah, uh, there's fires that I was left the state for. The universe does not want us <laughs> to do this show. <laughs> it is throwing everything it's got at us. Yeah, but we're still here. Um, Nothing's causing us to stop. Not you'd think without disasters we would have just gotten busy with other things. Right. You skip one. It's really easy to skip another two, and then, uh, you That's know. That's true. That's true. And somehow, yeah, I think our first episode was May of 2019. So We had just seen Us in the theater. Us was our first. Man, I'm so unprepared for a retrospective. So that maybe Because half April. the movies we've done, I'm like, we should do the. Oh, we did an hour and 20 yeah. on that one? Okay. You wow. may want to look. Yeah. We've done some, I, some great movies. I'd say about once a month. I scroll through our episodes, and there's always three that I'm like, oh, we did do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have done them so frequently that I'm getting some memories of them shoved out of my, my brain. Some are just a total surprise to me. You know, it's funny, too, because I think back, and I have a lot of favorite memories of certain moments and, and things. I don't know if I have a favorite episode or anything, but... Uh, I'm not sure. My, a lot of good you know, memories. A lot of good f- memories over my the My favorite episode... Year. Is always the next episode. You know what? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just kind of what keeps me going. Aw. <laughs> no, I'm the sure. The softy side is I'm coming sure out. I'm sure if I looked back through 50 episodes, there would be one that I'd go, that one. That's the one. That's, that's the it. That's the moneymaker. Yeah. I think there's got to be. Oh, man. I don't know what. I couldn't tell you what that one is, though. I know the ones that I'm more uh, ashamed of. <laughs> those stick right out those uh those haunt, are those haunt me deep in the brain it's like oh well my bad opinion is burned into the online <laughs> landscape forever yeah some right. guy and because it it always that's the thing i'm thinking about when i can't fall asleep i'm thinking of that one guy who's given our podcast a shot <laughs> and he picks one episode and it's me making like fart jokes for 30 minutes and he's like what <laughs> this guy doesn't know a thing and I was like, I don't remember doing that. You didn't cut that down at all. 
you come for the film talk, you you stay for the fart jokes. I think. Yeah. So um, I'm just saying, there's probably one stupid opinion per episode that I have. I'm just worried somebody's coming in right on that one, and they're just missing all the gold that I'm. Guys, these I'm are just spinning. opinions. They're 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 not Bible facts. They're really good opinions. They're and pretty we've done solid. Forty nine I mean, of them so we're, far. We're, we're saying them and then releasing them for the public to hear. So we're 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 standing behind the opinions, but they are just opinions. Um, I think the, the fact is, I'm Charlie. I'm Eric, and this is a movie podcast. I think part of the reason we've got to 50 episodes is, by and large, we are fairly low prep. That's why I think I've I'd forgotten say no doing some of these episodes. I'd say, I'd say no prep, and whatsoever. I like the fact that we've kept going with just us not planning what to talk about. It's led me in more interesting directions than if I think I'd mapped out episodes. It also leads me kicking myself when I forget about something that I really wanted to talk about. I know. But I like that free you gotta spirit. You got to take that. Yeah, you got to so roll with it, baby. You pointed out to me a couple weeks ago that we were coming so, up on 50. Oh, yeah. And we were thinking about what to do, whether we should do a really obscure one that we kind of experienced together, of which there are a few secret options that True. show up later, or if we just do a big one that we both love that we haven't done, that represents something of a new milestone, and you came up with a perfect one. <laughs> this is the best Well, one. it's it's a movie that has been on our list, I think, from the beginning. Yeah. So it was like, well, now is the time to this do... This is one of my top five favorite movies of all time, Blood Simple. And you came up with it as a movie we both love, a movie we've probably seen together, I'd say at least three times. Uh, at least we just watched it just yeah. now, um, which is probably my first time in five years. It's been a while for me. Yeah. Um, but this is also our first Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, that's of the podcast. That's what finally sold me on. Yo, so, this is the perfect one. Somehow we've not done a Coen's Brothers movie, and is it Coen's Brothers? Yep. Oh, we're leaving that we're gonna in, cut baby. That. <laughs> we're cut that. We are leaving that in. We're uh, going to cut that. I can't be looking like a <laughs> like a clown on our 50th cast. Well, the Coens, I will not have that. The Coens brothers are my <laughs> are some of my favorite filmmakers. Two, two of my favorite filmmakers. No, Leonard I, and Ethan. I am a, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers. Have been for 20-plus yeah. years now. No, this... And uh, it's crazy, actually, that we have not brought up one of their movies because they have, like, two dozen movies that we could have chosen <laughs> from that are all good yeah as a special treat at the end of this we've only done this on our epic once upon a time in hollywood episode we will be ranking our coen brothers movies top Neither, 10 top 10 there's 18 total coen brothers movies we are not doing a top 18 i did not want to be fussing around with 16 versus 17 <laughs> exactly but a yeah. top 10 which was uh, maybe arguably harder because that means we had to eliminate eight. Yes. Eight, we are basically deeming terrible. No. See, <laughs> actually, quite the opposite. Uh, no, I truly enjoy every Coen Same. Brothers movie. Literally every. Uh, We're talking about the others. I like the bottom one. I like them all. You like the Lady I really Killers. Do. I like Intolerable Cruelty. Could the, it be any more obvious? You know, the man who wasn't there takes place in Santa Rosa, California, so it's got that going for it. Yeah. Um. I I have I have championed every one of their films to a degree. So a top ten was really tough because I had to exactly. ask eight. So that's going to be a really fun thing at the end. But this movie is so special to me. 
That's why I was happy that you suggested it. Oh, because well. it feeds into <laughs> into what I want. Because <laughs> well, like I said, it's it, I knew I knew that you loved it. I love it. Yeah, um, this is the one that I've been, been on the list. That I've one so of the movies I've been forcing on people for for several years now. A quick recommendation, an even quicker offering to watch it with them. Mm-hmm. I love watching it with people that haven't seen it. I love watching it with people that have seen it. <laughs> it is a true favorite of mine this is part of the most difficult year for me in film history because i as far as choosing favorites choosing favorites yeah yeah i keep a big running list of every day i see a movie and i kind of rank those movies within their year just to keep abreast of what's my favorite and i update the lists uh whenever i notice something that doesn't look quite right and it's fun to add in a movie. Well, you just updated the, your 1986 list for Manhunter. Yeah, Manhunter was Which we third. just talked about the last episode. Manhunter bumped the fly from the second spot. Strong. Blue Velvet. Strong so, move. Yeah, strong. That was a tough... That was I had to stare at the screen for a bit before <laughs> I made that copy-paste. And 1984 is Blood Simple, The Terminator, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, man. Streets of Fire. Mm-hmm. Stop making sense. Keep going. Like, yeah. No, and no. then you're getting into second tier cut insane. stuff like Night of the Comet and Karate Kid. And I'm like, Jesus, how do I how do I knock these against each other? But especially a movie like Stop Making Sense, Streets of Fire, Blood Simple, The Terminator, Nightmare on Elm Street, those are all five peaks of their genre for me. And they're all being directly compared on my list. It's the most impossible year. I hate that top five. You may not want to perfect. do this kind of ranking anymore. <laughs> you, yeah. Got this sweaty. I hate everything about it. Forehead sweat is just. Why is he doing this? <laughs> is it hot in here? Is it hot in here? Ah, <laughs> oh, got cold. Got cold. This this movie is so special to me, though, and I want. I always love f- figuring out like our first experiences. I love always putting ourselves in the context of our relationship mm. because with this movie, just because sometimes we approach it from, oh yeah, we saw it together versus one of us seeing it when we were 16, the other seeing it like last year. And so when I saw Blood Simple, I was a big, huge Fargo and big Lebowski fan. I probably watched those mo- my VHS of those as much as any movie over that five-year period. Mm-hmm. So... By the time, uh, I think this got a theatrical re-release around like 98, 99, somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it played over at Summerfield when it was still called the Rialto. Yeah. So they did a re-release because it was a big director's cut. And I was such a big fan of their other movies. I had never heard anything about this movie. But I saw it with a bunch of old people. Summer, Summerfield draws the olds, man. They do. So, and they're always, and it's the best kind of old people because it's like, I'll watch an independent crime thriller. <laughs> like, they will just go to the Rialto, and it's great. And so, it's me and a bunch of old people watching this kind of like grimy, quiet, slow Texas crime drama. And it's just like, this is really great. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really loving all of this. So I was probably 19, 20 or so. Yeah. And uh, what about you? Were you more of a later convert? I'm, I think I saw this in a film class. I have a memory of uh, an instructor kind of being like, okay, you like Fargo, watch this yeah. kind of a thing. And um, 
that's my memory of it. So I must have been probably about the same age okay. as, as you're same talking age, about. Same age, yeah. A couple years later, if in it a wasn't, setting. If it wasn't senior year of high school, it was when I was going to the junior college. I took a bunch of those kind of film classes. But yeah, I remember a lot of kind of the critical analysis being given to me. So mm. it's a little unfair. Like, uh, I think I appreciate the movie on on a technical level because it's the debut of these guys, these Coen sure. brothers. And the vision is so strong right off the yeah. bat. The strong story. The voice super is so strong. Story and yeah, super great vision for this whole layout of the story. A lot of things happen in this movie that are then reused by the Coen brothers in later movies. Oh, big time. Big time. Like, obviously reused. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, we got more money and a better grasp of how to do this. Let's use this shot. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Or the whole sequence on the road, that kind of a thing. Oh, yeah, it's uh, but it's, even somebody uh, getting followed in a Volkswagen, <laughs> right? Is John Polito in uh, Lebowski? But you usually hear like uh, you know, the first film is is usually something more like Dark Star from John Carpenter yeah. or something, something where you go like, okay, yeah, even Spielberg, you know, had you know, Duel Schlock or from John Landis, exactly. You know. So for this movie to be so competent, uh, more than competent, you know. Yeah, Ex- almost seemingly expertly made already by two guys who were making their first kind of big feature foray. Yeah, well, it's just like really impressive to watch it. This movie, on I that think, level alone. is a little. I- I've heard some Cohen Brothers fans uh, divided over it. One, and I think it's because it's cheap. It's made Absolutely. cheap, and I think there's some people that are just genuinely turned off by cheapness. Yeah, in a movie. it happens. And I think this was just one of those movies that we've watched enough cheap flicks. <laughs> you know, we've watched Real Shot cheap. on Video, and we love cheap. And so a movie like this, I think we're, our brains are just wired to really love the actual cinema behind this cheapness. And I kind of think the cheapness adds to the a lot of these blood simple shots. Well, it's cheap in that the way that it's it's not a, a high definition camera. It, the gear, I mean, right. it's cheap gear. It's a one point five million dollar budget. Yeah, in the eighties, I I it, it also kind of my brain associates cheap with it because this is a movie that's kind of actually a a good potboiler mystery drama that kind of films things a bit like a slasher film. Mm. There's a lot of POV shot kind of stuff like a slasher and there's a the lot of moving stuff. camera yeah yeah the handheld sure. camera which was weird in 84 but it also gave me that there's similar shots to evil dead oh yeah a lot of rushing camera stuff that feels ex- like distinctly sam raimi mm-hmm. was used in a couple scenes here to the exact same effect so there's kind of this feeling of like a really classy tv crime drama filmed by <laughs> the cheap Raimi brothers as a slasher. Right. I totally get that. And and with that in mind, there's also a lot of like tricks that they are like, let's see if we can pull off this simple trick. Yeah. I'm thinking of like when Francis McDormand is laying back in bed and the scene transitions. Oh, sure. Tricks when like that. In the bar and then it transitions to her falling into bed. Yeah. In, in the, the same in, shot. In the kinda. single shot. And I wonder, and that kind of stuff feels more like guys trying stuff out. It does. Rather than the Coen brothers being like, this is our thing. So uh, I, I, there is I that like to that it. vibe of them trying things out in this movie and experimenting with shots and some stuff that, you know, maybe could have been smoother. 
but that experimenting with shots while still having a super tight story. Yeah. Like the most twisted, perfect Hitchcock kind of story where you end up with these principal characters and we know everything that's gone on and we can see exactly the specific information they know. Right. (laughs) And we see exactly why they're messing up and making these incorrect assumptions. We see it all. And... Yeah, the miscommunication. We see exactly how the miscommunication's happening, but it never plays like a comedy of blunders. It's these, like, no, you're not getting it. Yeah. And everybody's making kind of bad decisions, but they're the same (laughs) kind kind of... of bad. They're the same kind of really bad decisions that a lot of us would make. We get full, real-time, kind of dumb guy panic cleaning up a murder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that kind of frantic pace with the overall quiet slow tone of this thing i can't get enough of it i love it so much it's there's a reason why i keep showing this to people and keep wanting an excuse to watch this flick i love it it's it's great yeah the tight story that's kind of one of the most impressive things about this movie is just that they were able to construct this cool crime yeah but it's but it's also basically um it starts out with the wife cheating on the husband with an employee of the husband. Mm-hmm. Guy owns the bar. That's Marty who owns the bar. Marty, Dan Hedaya. Dan Hedaya. Recent his, subject of the pod yeah. with Boiling Point. Making his return to the pod here. Yeah. Uh, looking as cleft-chinned as ever. Dan Hedaya as hairy-chested has so as ever. many facial and body features, man. <laughs> this guy is... He plays things so gruff and quiet as opposed to uh, a guy like Timothy Carey, who has a lot of facial features, and he just uses all of them constantly. Right. Yet Dan Hedaya has just got so many distracting features. Like, you're always looking at stray hairs that are popping off (laughs) over every part of this dude's body. He's got that great deep chin. He's got the biggest eyebrows. Mm -hmm. He's got just the best mug. Like, oh, he's endlessly watchable. And this is one of his best... Guy with really no good comebacks for anything. (laughs) Everybody in this movie gets in over their head without totally realizing they're in over their head. They all have different skill levels at the things they don't know they do. And they all somehow manage to get just under their skill level. Mm -hmm. And Dan Hedaya is a great guy to watch in this. Guy with a genuine grievance. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, his wife's stepping out. His wife is uh, Frances McDormand in, in her screen debut. Is this her debut? That's what it, the, the, the trivia says. Oh, I guess says. 84, yeah. Because right after this was Mississippi Burning, just a couple years. Okay. And by that point, she was like a, you know, award-nominated actress. Oh, yeah. So I didn't realize it was that little between. She's uh, She's immediately amazing in this movie. Has there been a more rewarding husband-wife partnership? For both parties, then in, then in Joel, film, Joel Cohen and, and Francis McDormand, yeah, they, yeah, they actually got married in 1984. So whether it was, uh, yeah, while they were maybe they met while they were making this movie, maybe, possibly, maybe they already knew each other. I, I don't quite know the history, but yeah, if it was a partnership still from the beginning, but uh, they're still married. They, you know, uh, as much as I love Susanna Love and uh, Uli Lomo <laughs> making, uh, <laughs> like. 
Well, this is the one boogeyman. At least this is one where it's not the Helena Bonham Carter syndrome, oh, where it's where you just where hate you just, both you of the gotta people. Gotta put her in the movie, I guess. Yeah, you hate both of the parties, and it's not quite the Remy Harlan, Gina Davis. Not quite. Of like, well, you ruined his career. <laughs> you both made terrible action movies together. Yeah. This is a mutually beneficial relationship here. This is a great creative partnership. Totally. And I love how she's started being in their movies more yeah. in the last decade. Yeah. Um, she's great. She's, she's great. great. I love her in everything. and I, She's got big doe eyes in this one. She's so cute and so sweet in this one. And I love, we just talked at length about, in Manhunter, about the profiling aspect. And this movie is so cool because there's so much information. There's so few characters in this movie. But a lot of what we learn about all these characters is the other characters shit-talking the characters to other characters. Right. You know, it's Marty telling suspicious things about Abby to Ray. Or it's a conversation between Ray and uh, Maurice. Mm -hmm. Or it's a combination between Abby and Maurice. And you learn, and they're always talking about one of the other five people (laughs) in this movie. And so you're learning half this stuff as secondhand gossip. And it's this way that it's kind of tricking you into not quite believing the story that you're seeing. Yeah, you don't trust anybody in this movie. Even though you see how it all happens. Yeah. You're still just like, maybe there's something they're not telling me here. Right. It feels like I'm being left out of something, even though you are in on all of it. And it's such a masterfully handled crime plot that just has this odd tone that I don't totally associate with Coen Brothers movies. Well, it's like the crime aspect is is this very fiery kind of crime of passion where Dan Hedaya, after kind of getting his ass handed to him, uh, wants uh, wants a private investigator who's who's been following these two yeah. to uh, to kill him to kill both of them. It's this. It's it feels like a classic noir story where one man wants to hire a dirty man to commit two murders. And the dirty, conniving man thinks it would be easier for me to just commit one murder and figure out a way to get paid for that, which is very smart. But this is has that same kind of Killer Joe vibe mm-hmm. of, again, th- that one had just exclusively dumb people. <laughs> the dumbest. <laughs> Killer Joe is exclusively stupids, whereas the these people were not necessarily dumbest. stupid, but people in over their head. Mm-hmm. And pretending they know more than they do. And that's the same vibe as Killer Joe. These people were acting bigger than they were. Absolutely. And this whole movie is that. And it is just frustrating and yet kind of too real. <laughs> Put yourself in old Marty's crocodile loafers. You know? Yeah, he loves this woman. She's sleeping with the guy who works for him at the bar he owns. Yeah. You know, he he tries to play the tough guy role and gets kicked in the nards <laughs> to the point where he vomits yeah not a good look Br- brutal brutal exit so he's been humiliated yeah this know? guy keeps and getting on top humiliated. of everything else yeah yeah so the only guy that he can turn to is this private investigator this the guy uh, who uncovered and confirmed the affair in the first place yeah a guy who he knows is absolute scum <laughs> yeah. a guy who he in the beginning of the movie is like I'll know what rock to find you under. Yeah. Like, just straight telling the guy, you're garbage to me. This is that performance. And, you know, I think we all 
kind of figured out who M. Emmett Walsh was at different points in our life because he's <laughs> we've such all a, had that we all had the M. Emmett Walsh moment. oh yeah this guy because he stands out so much in anything he's at my first M. Emmett Walsh memory is he played the mom's dad on Home Improvement perfect <laughs> there you go I forget her name Patricia something um but yeah, he's oh yeah, yeah. It's like Mrs. Her, Tim Allen, Mrs. Tim Allen Thank you. to you, <laughs> and that's so it's Tim Allen's father-in-law. Got it. And the whole episode is just him writing this boring ass war strategy book, and her anxiety over having to tell him it's terrible. <laughs> and also, as a side note, everybody who ever talks about Home Improvement, the only episode of that show they can remember is the M. Emmett Walsh boring war dad episode. Oh, I this love is that. a fact. This, this is a, a confirmed fact. fact. It's the only one that's it's the only survived. episode of a 200 plus episode show that anybody remembers. And Bank on it. He's still around too. He is still around. He's so old. He's looked so old for the last decade, and he's still showing up in things that I watch. It's amazing. He's. I'm, he's I'm, I'm, I'm looking at his filmography to see if I have a first M. Emmett Walsh memory that well, I can think come of. anywhere. The guy's been in stuff since the 70s. Yeah. I think I'm. I think I would have to say. Oh, I do have that Tales from the Crypt episode he's in. Um, <laughs> you have it on the disc. Yeah. Oh, I got it on mm. the disc. Oh. Uh, I would have to say it's got to be Blade Runner in my head, though. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, his his. Uh, he's great in it. His little bit in that, but uh, but I, this movie. Do you is... ever remember reading about the Ebert Walsh Stanton rule? I remember reading about I, this in high school. I and think you've shared this with me at some yeah. point. Yeah, the idea that... Uh, Any movie with either of those guys is at least as watchable as those two guys. Right. It's it That whole quote has shaped such a major aspect of my movie-loving life. That is the quote that made me go after character actors and experience their roles instead of judging the movie well that's kind of that's kind of the joy of boiling point from a few episodes ago totally. right not yeah a, maybe not the greatest movie but but a so movie many i actors adore because of the actors it's that, that enjoyable yeah but, yeah this though this per, this is m emmett walsh's finest this is hour. it so with the walsh stanton rule you th- i think about harry dean stanton and it's tough to have one stan oh god <laughs> i think about the man a lot i have pictures of the man in my house we should do a a tribute episode to him too at some point yeah oh yeah the uh but when i think of him and try and signal single out one role very tough i love the most recent movie his final movie lucky but then you know there's something like paris texas you know there's there's he has so many little jumping off points whereas this this role of m emmett walsh in blood simple is so good so the perfect M. Emmett Walsh role that it's got to be the first performance anybody can think of, of this guy. Goddamn should be. I mean, has there's hardly any roles that have ever matched up to a human <laughs> better <laughs> than this role. It, it does yeah. feel like a, a born-to-play kind of yeah. thing, right? Shelley Duvall is olive oil? Move aside! <laughs> <laughs> M. Emmett Walsh totally. as Dirty Man in the Yellow Hat. Yeah. Uh, Visser, I think his name is, right? Yeah, he's got um, that Lauren keychain. Oh, Lor- yeah, I think Lauren Visser is, yeah. his, is his name on the uh, but yeah, he's got this amazing yellow suit, drives a 
bug. Yeah. He's got the big hat he carries with him everywhere. The a ca- primer colored bug. Such a character. <laughs> no yeah. paint left on it. Such a Texas. He's got the Texas drawl. He's so loud. He's got he's flies so, on him all the time. He has what? So many flies on his <laughs> face. There was like a fly on his eyelid, and he's yeah, not blinking he's or not moving it. Moving a muscle. <laughs> this fly lands on his eyeball, and you're just sitting there with your with your butt clenched, waiting for him to flip out, and he's just in a stare down, just chill as can be, thinking about sipping some sweet tea. Ah, these characters. I mean, as tight as the plot is, the characters and the way the Coen brothers are able to create these characters. Yeah. Man, that is just so... It's such a, It's so crazy so to think enjoyable. Of, of a lot of their later movies that have been so filled with characters. Right. Some of his, some of their movies are literally just a tour through assorted characters that you see for one scene. You know, that is a lot of late era Coen Brothers movies. And it all starts with this movie where there's like five people in it. Right. <laughs> You're hardly seeing a, a soul. Super memorable characters, though. And they, I mean, like this guy, this this Lauren Visser character, you know, Anton Chigurh from old, No Country yeah. for Old Men is like the the big bad guy, right? Yeah. Peter, Peter Stormare, the strong silent killer from, from Fargo, super evil dude. Yeah. This guy is evil and knows it, and yeah. is okay with it, and laughs about it. And is just so slimy. This and, is and, that and um, perfectly <laughs> just the shit eating grin. Oh my god! Right, just everything. He's he's maybe the ultimate kind of Cohen brother villain. He's kind of he's the archetype. He's the world's else. like first like internet troll. <laughs> everything he says in a conversation is just trying to bug the other person. Absolutely, everything he says is just a little tiny ribbing pointing fingers in your back kind of comment and he does it with no fear no fear he's got this big lurching character he's got a weird body shape yeah moves odd that seersucker yellow suit is just fitting that suit man like oh it's got like that kind of like you know Music, country music nudie suit kind of feel to it but it, it feels like he could be on like the grand old opry with yeah or something right it's yeah. very much like a carl perkins in the yeah. 70s kind of suit yeah and emmett walsh got that perfect uh the number zero shaped head <laughs> you know he's just got that big elongated head with a super expressive face and those jowls and the most recognizable voice i think for me Mm-hmm. in cinema that I can be that is the voice where if I am anywhere in the house and hear a clip of that there's I don't think there's you anybody perk up else like a I, dog. I don't think there's anybody else that I would recognize as quickly as M. Emmett Walsh maybe somebody like Walter Brennan or something oh sure you know Jimmy Stewart <laughs> maybe I don't know but M. Emmett Walsh has such a like well there's only M. Emmett Walsh there is it's just him that's a good way to put it there is only yeah, M.M. He's still Walsh. doing it. It's amazing. I love him. But this is his role. I mean, this is like the closest he's probably ever had to a lead in a movie. There's no real lead lead, but this is his biggest, meatiest, longest right. role for sure. This thing is like, this This movie is like a three-card Monty. 
where you got just like or you know the, the three cups and there's one ball under them and you're trying to figure out who's doing what and yeah. everything is just shuffling and around. you're watching it you know what's happening right and there still just feels like there's things that you might possibly be missing the coen brothers have just like they've kind of moved into more characters i think of a movie like lebowski which has an absurdly complicated plot to a first-time viewer right and then you watch it and you're realizing oh i don't really have to concentrate that much on the plot <laughs> like i can just be enjoying all of this and this one is like kind of the opposite where you see exactly what's happening and yet you feel that there's stuff at the perimeters that you're like well can i trust abby like there's totally. so many cool callbacks and so many so many cool things that are set up and you can see every way this plan could potentially go right and all of the ways and all of the dumb reasons that it's going wrong mm-hmm. for everyone. Everyone, one of these movies where everyone is ending up worse off because of all of this. And you're just watching it unfold and not able to stop any of it. Mm-hmm. Ugh. We get this beautiful score throughout. I don't, I, did, I forgot to check who even did the score. And look, I love these simple minimalist piano cues and it's all played very like tv crime drama and that kind of adds to this softness and the cool texas realness of this whole thing we should also make it a point that first time i saw the movie in the theaters yeah it was the new director's cut which i do not support and I've never actually watched outside of that theater experience. That's the only r- version that exists on DVD and Blu-ray. And so we have to go to the Laserdisc and VHS for our version, which I think is the superior version. So what happened there? I don't know. It's got to be one of those things like, you know, we recently saw the rescored Evil Dead, you know, with the new sound mix and, you know, some tightened up effects. Some of these directors, and I imagine I would do the same thing, would just fuss over the little things that they made when they didn't have any money and they were on a tighter schedule. And God, wouldn't it be great? I get that stupid mindset. I get that obsession that, God, we can just go back and change it. But I loved all of the stuff that they ended up changing. Like, I love the original version of it. Right, right, right. Some director's cuts go long, and we're getting, you know, 20 extra minutes of footage. And their director's cut went, like, five minutes shorter. All the stuff they hated about the movie was just, eh, that scene went on too long. So they cut short, like, five or six different scenes, and all the stuff they cut short, I love. It's it's so weird because it's only like an hour and forty I know, it's minute a, movie. It's a short movie, and they said eh, this is running. And I think the movie like does. Forty year old virgin is longer than this movie. <laughs> yeah. And this, I think the movie does play slow to a lot of people. Oh yeah, uh, it's it's a slow paced, uh, you know, movie that kind of escalates. But I don't. It's never boring. To I gotta me. say, yeah, watching it this this evening just now, there's no like filler. No. There's no unnecessary filler in this movie. It is it is moving along step by step towards its ultimate goal pretty well. There there's no yeah. moment that feels like they've missed the thread. Even in when we're talking about Manhunter, there's moments where it feels like 
Uh, we might be missing our our ultimate thread. Well, here. I mean, we, we a lot even... of movies, a lot of movies will do that. They'll they'll meander. They'll try to do a little too much character thing. They'll try to add a relationship in or something. Sure. This movie is well. We even said during. I think you said the words during Manor. It's like you know, Lecter didn't even really need to be in right. this movie. We right. were happy it was there, but if you needed to get this movie from two hours down to an hour forty five, you could feasibly dream right. out Lecter as much as I love it. And I'm not really seeing that with blood symbols. There's nothing to. There's nothing. And even the stuff that. Super, uh, yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, nothing you superfluous. Don't need. And nothing that. When I look at the list of stuff that got trimmed, that we just watched it on VHS, and all the stuff that got trimmed is stuff that I really liked about their scenes. Their little character moments like Ray sticking a cigarette in the stuffed warthog's nose. And you might think, well, yeah, you don't need that. It's a little silly, goofy scene. But that whole scene had been Abby going back to their her husband's house mm-hmm. to look for pick up something that she didn't want to leave behind since she was basically fleeing the scene. A, a gun. A gun. <laughs> and Ray is just in this beautiful billiards room with these nice ferns and uh, wood paneling. And he's just kind of kicking around, shooting some... Uh, some eight ball. Yep. <laughs> waiting for Abby to find the thing she was looking for. And then she calls him on the intercom. And you get that great face of everybody who's ever been in a house for the first time that has an intercom. And they're just like, what? There's an, really? Exactly. Does that have an intercom? That's yeah. weird. He's basically pulling the, yeah. Huh? What? So he's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to get out of here. Okay. And then he shoves the cigarette. And I love that. I think you pointed this out. That he's going to know that Abby came home to get her stuff but now he knows that he was there too right right that ray was also there otherwise you wouldn't know and it's this little unsaid thing that makes a big difference to what dan hadea is going through and they cut that kind of stuff it's so weird to me all the stuff they cut one of them was a music rights issue and i am a supporter of the original music because it adds such a weird depth because it's used a lot it's a it's a song that gets played about three or four times. Yeah, to great effect. To great effect in important Both scenes. Times. Yeah, big scenes. And it's such an odd tonal shift, and it feels like one of those things that the Coen Brothers. This is why they were getting into film. They wanted to make a scene that people had seen before with elements that felt way out of place. Totally. And so that's why we end up with Neil Diamond. <laughs> crooning and throughout like a good eighth of this movie yep it's a, at, at the most inopportune times i know it's such a loud neil diamond i love this guy and such a big neil fan and <laughs> <laughs> remember my mom just tell it my mom is such a such a huge neil diamond we're, fan we're diamond going to see him here. in the theater in the round style he had the round stage so he could play to all love sides of the audience what a showman. Nice. But this song is that Monkeys song. I, I'm assuming it's the, he wrote it for the Monkeys. Okay. In the 60s. I'm a believer. Right, right, right. This tune that Smash Mouth wrote for Neil Diamond. I was going to say uh, maybe they lost the rights to Shrek. Yeah, I think Shrek fucked everything up <laughs> for Blood Simple. What fucking kind of hellscape world are we living <laughs> yeah. in? If that's the case, where Shrek was like, actually, we want the song exclusively. Like Shrek. Sorry, Blood And Simple. the Coen brothers are like, we're not in competition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No crossover audience. <laughs> Don't worry about us. 
please. Nobody yeah. will associate the two. Look, we can't have Donkey playing uh, I'm a Believer and have it during the murder uh, yeah, cleanup scene. Yeah, we can't scene. have it during a blood wipe-up scene. <laughs> people will get confused. So this Neil That's Diamond- like when people are like, why did that uh, Call Me Angel drop happen in It too? Yeah. It's like, because it's fucking fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, was, I had tears in my eyes. With that song and it too. Where did that come from? There's nothing in the source material. But it's that about like, Juice Newton. Oh, this is not appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> I I saw that movie a couple times at the theater. And one time, this couple there was on a date, and they were sitting near me. And right when that happened, I heard the girl, and it's played loud. Yeah, that song is loud in the mix of it too. And the girl just went, "What?" <laughs> just so confused and then it stops it's just like what is this movie doing to us <laughs> and that's what this neil diamond song keeps doing because i love that it's introduced by like this long spiel this whole is that is that the right song that they meant to play there right because maurice maurice m-e-u the kick-ass bartender the, from detroit where in that you can tell where that guy went on his last vacation. That dude visited Carlsbad. <laughs> he loves it. His, he hearts it. He <laughs> visited Carlsbad. His crew neck told me so. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's got white jeans, the white Carlsbad crew neck, and them jeans are tucked into Chuck Taylor All-Stars, also white. Also white. That scene Beautiful. with Maurice walking up over the bar straight to the jukebox that's one of those scenes that feels so written, so scripted, and I love it. <laughs> I love it with this Lubbock Lummox. And he, Maurice is giving this whole spiel about, well, I'm from Detroit. And you're thinking like, oh, man, what music is he going to be playing? Man. What kind of <laughs> exactly. greasy soul is he going to be playing? <laughs> and he pops in Neil Diamond's I'm a Believer <laughs> and is into it this was not an act he didn't accidentally pick the pina colada song was like no 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 not g8 yeah yeah like (laughs) (laughs) you know he he didn't you know he this was not like no i bought street fighting man oh (laughs) no i'm a believer he knows the jukebox he knows it those i'm a believer buttons are worn in (laughs) maurice wears this track they had to put a new 45 in there yeah yeah and it is just the most 1984 brassy production. Whatever jangly pop monkeys tune you're thinking of, if you've not heard the Neil Diamond cut of his own song, it is so big. You can hear the, <laughs> yeah, you can just hear the hair. Yeah. The size of the hair and the sparkly outfit. He does that great. It's all the monkeys was, you know, like super nice pop harmonies. And his is doing his Neil Diamond growl into it. That, ah, fuck, <laughs> like the whole thing is so growly. Absolutely. And there's like a weird, inappropriate sax solo. And you're like, this is what Maurice is? Huh. Loves it. Okay. Maurice is doing it. But tell you what, we got about three hours left on this episode. <laughs> I got to take a break. Okay. We'll come back for part two of Blood Simple. There's going to be more, I'm a believer. We're going an hour on I'm a Believer, (laughs) but I'm so excited for episode 50. We'll come back with part two. You got it. Just a moment. I 
Lord loves only true and fairy tales Meant for someone else but not for me all right, fellas, it's uh, Candy. Let's give her a hand. Hey. Oh, man. <laughs> Who is that guy? All right, we're back. Uh, this is uh, part two of Blood Simple. We're just talking about all the cast of Texan characters. We, we kind of do get to see these glimpses of guys sh- shooting the old finger guns at each other on the road. And yeah. The guy who's uh, got the great mustache. And that stuff all in felt very, very David Lynch to me. There was a bit, of, yeah. These these weird off kilters, these weird non important characters that just kind of are around for color. Yeah, and we get a we get a scene. Uh, you were going to talk about Hadea and and M. Emmett Walsh and <laughs> the scene where they set the terms for this killing. Yeah, where he orders the hit. Yeah, out on Lover's Lane with all these people making fun of Dan Hedaya as he's walking <laughs> yeah. down the line. This is guy's such... just getting shit on by this guy is strangers so hard. So he. When he goes to uh, confront his wife about this and ends up with his balls kicked in and his finger broken. Yeah. That's how she gets out of the... uh, She beats his ass pretty good there. Yikes. That's him being like, you know what? I want these people dead. Yeah, fuck it. And he goes out to, yeah, this like make out point, like out by the quarry. Wherever they go. He he told Emmett Walsh, he, I, I know what rock to find you under. Apparently, he wasn't <laughs> Apparently kidding. Apparently he did. <laughs> and I love how the scene starts. You get this. The movie's use of music is so fun and so unexpected. Because then we get the blaring Toots and the Maytals. Yeah. Louie Louie cover. Off of Funky Kingston all of a sudden in Lubbock. And you focus in on Dan Hedaya's finger brace. Yeah, and you get a bunch of burnouts and Heshers just making fun of his broken finger, <laughs> just like oh my god, I can't catch a break, man. No, just a bunch of people s- sitting around drinking beer out there, like crummy uh, woody cars out of the quarantine. Yeah, and this is where he's got to meet Lauren. That's where he's got to meet him. Yeah, and Walsh is just out there bullshitting with some teenager, <laughs> yeah. and, and- wearing his one yellow suit. It's just such a great uh, juxtaposition because he's all chummy and hammy, and then Dan Hedaya is just stone faced. Yeah, and like just eventually, Emmett Walsh is just like, all right. So yet I am way more you, scared of, what do you of want Lauren do? than yeah. I am of Marty. True. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Marty's trying to act tough. Yeah, but he can't, he's not. He's or, gruff. Or, you know, but he's not necessarily tough. Right. Right. Emmett Walsh is a guy who kind of acts the way he wants because he has the confidence to act however he wants. He's got no, yeah. Yeah, that scene of him with the girl, and he goes, yeah, she saw me rolling my own cigarette, thought it was marijuana. (laughs) Isn't that wild? He's such a weird square in some ways, and then just the most debauched human in in every other way. Yeah. He's got that those great Southern ideals in some respects. Well, as long as it's legal and it pays well. And he goes, well, it's not not legal. As long as it pays yeah, well. As long as it pays well. <laughs> just effortless yeah. doing that. No, it's you, great. It's so easy to push this guy deeper into nefarious crime for money. Yeah. Great. Oh. And honestly, then what happens is that Emmett Walsh actually has a pretty brilliant idea that's the thing a lot of people in this movie have pretty good ideas (laughs) it's a it's it's sick in the head and dastardly but he instead of killing uh ray and abby he fakes it 
Yeah. And then plans to collect the money after he's uh, doctored some photos. Steals Abby's gun so that uh, yeah, when he a, meets Dan Hedaya... It's a tight scheme. When he meets Dan Hedaya, gets his money, and he shoots him one time. This like dude, you said, one for the price of two. Yeah, he was getting paid ten grand for two killings. What if you do a night's worth of legwork, and suddenly it's ten grand for one killing? For one guy. And set up his wife with the gun. Yeah, you don't have to dispose of two bodies. You get to let the cops find one body. He has a great plan. I love it. This is this, this is the is, kind of crime I like. Mm-hmm. This is a guy <laughs> who's come off like kind of a dummy, right? Kind of a guy who can only get these kind of gigs. Who's like, oh, actually, this guy knows these characters inside Seems, and out. He, yeah, kind of feels like it's not his first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the ways a well executed and well orchestrated plan can immediately go south. Mm-hmm. is literally what constitutes the next hour of this movie. Exactly. And then this is where all the misunderstanding really kicks into high gear. Because yeah. Ray comes in, sees is dead, thinks Abby's done it. Yeah. Here we go. Finds her gun. Finds her gun. That's the great thing about how tightly this story is constructed. And that's probably why it's smarter to keep it limited to so few characters. Right. It's so easy to lose a plot line when you're bringing in multiple moving parts. But they do a lot of complex stuff that a lot of movies botch, and they give everybody a legitimate, honest reason to be at all of the places they show up. A lot of movies don't do that. A lot Mm -hmm. of movies supply a little bit of a, oh, they happen to pass each other. These people are all, Ray's showing up to get his money that he's owed. The ball's on Ray. Fuck Ray. This guy. Ray. That was the scene that can really turn you to Team Marty. And you're not supposed to be on Team Marty. You know, I feel bad for Marty. Marty got... Honestly. Marty's an asshole who got done worse than he should have been done. Yeah, and I feel worse for him as it goes on. But man, Ray sleeps with the boss's wife and then has the gall. (laughs) Yeah. The audacity to go back and say, you owe me for two weeks worth of work. You know, John Getz... Holy cow, John Getz can really play a piece piece of junk. This guy, we were talking oh. about 86 earlier with my fly uh, bump down for oh, yeah. Manhunter. Getz is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beer, a nice bearded Getz in the fly. Bearded Getz. Always good at reaching the worst ending for a human right? in these movies, John Getz. And you kind of understand why. Once, once Ray is still asking for his two weeks that he's owed. After, it's like, let it go. After bro. literally running away together. With the boss's wife. Ooh. You left some right to that pay back at uh, yeah, that motel room, so. Ray. Exactly. Ooh. Didn't like that from Ray. And so everybody does have their motivation. So Ray's showing up to get his money. He sees this murder immediately. Has no idea who the guy in the yellow is. Right. Ray and Abby have no idea that there's a guy in yellow who's yeah. been following It's them. perfect how each character knows each other and yeah. what they don't know. Yeah. And so Ray immediately, like you would think, this is me or you covering up a murder that we think we should cover up. Right. I don't know if we're ever going to get into that spot, but this is about as well as I would handle it. Well, he loves Abby, and, and uh, yeah, he, he wants to cover up this murder so that they can not go to jail. She cannot go to jail, essentially, right? So yeah. we get this great, long, drawn-out scene of him. Totally butchering this cleanup job. This where cleanup is brutal. He's basically just 
wiping blood around a, a wood floor. He is for trying to find ways minutes. to make this blood cover as much ground as possible. <laughs> it's true. He is looking he does for that well. He then. is looking for new ways to smear blood yeah. everywhere. Exactly. This scene and that this is the second great I'm a believer scene. Yep. A huge pivotal scene of this movie. This is where the most things start going south. And it is entirely scored by Neil Diamond. Mm -hmm. Because Maurice shows up at the bar. Ray, luckily, now doesn't want the body found. So Maurice is just in the other room entertaining a lady, blaring his His song song. again. His favorite song. His moneymaker. Yeah. (laughs) Can't miss. Can't miss with I'm a Believer, Neil Diamond version. 60% of the time, it works every (laughs) time. Maurice is a believer. I'm a and I'm a believer. Absolutely. And you Make get Ray doing the worst blood cleanup, but about probably the best blood cleanup that I could do to the tune of I'm a believer. The guy takes off a windbreaker jacket. He's just like one of those flimsy stuff. plastic, yeah. you know, non-absorbent because it's like supposed to not absorb rain yeah. and wind. And he decides that's going to be his main cloth to wipe up a pool of blood. Yeah, Dan that Hidea. has formed under Dan Hedaya. We get uh, a lot of... So the director's cut, which I complained about earlier, trimmed a lot of the silence of the movie. They thought that the scenes just went on too long. And I think the movie really grows in all this silence. It's building tension. It's classic Hitchcock yeah. building suspense. And they just didn't like it. And so they well, snipped all this stuff. They're idiots. What else have these guys done? <laughs> But you get these shots like Dan Hedaya before getting the idea, I'm going to go catch him in the act. That's going to go really well for me. You just get the shot of him reclined in his office behind the bar, looking at the ceiling fan. And then you get this other long shot of him in his chair, slumped because he's dead, looking at the ceiling fan, looking like he's napping. And this blood is just pooling up underneath him from this gunshot wound. And... This blood cleanup. Oh my gosh. If there was there was like a seven inch diameter puddle forming under his chair. And the next time the camera shows it, Ray has turned it into this five foot diameter <laughs> smear of red on this old ass floor that hasn't been cleaned in twenty-five years. Totally. And now he's cleaning it with red is soaking into everything. It's all over him. This is the worst blood cleanup ever yeah then uh ray decides well i gotta bury the body somewhere i gotta get rid of this body obviously so he's so how deep are you in how deep are you in at this point what would it take how special is abby trust me what kind of spell does abby have if the woman i had just started sleeping with murders someone i think yeah i'm not hiding the body i'm calling the cops how i'm getting myself away from this how good at sex is Abby? What's has the, to be has to be good. That's to be above average. The opening scene where you see them in the hotel room kind of didn't look great. Yeah, they. It's kind <laughs> of it's kind of a beautiful thing about the movie that Abby and Ray don't totally have chemistry. Yeah, <laughs> this doesn't feel built to last in any portion of this movie. Yeah, they Even are not. They are not like the star-crossed lovers kind of a thing where it's just like. <laughs> they're meant for each other it's like no. no she's just trying to get out of a bad situation this doesn't feel like either's gonna be he's like i like you yeah. i like you this is a 
personality clash. Yeah, right. And we are always reminded of that. And Ray is immediately, boy, for a guy who is so disloyal, the man's wife, Ray got loyal quick. Mm-hmm. He makes some questionable, these got to be these split second choices. If I caught Charlie murdering someone, I'm sure I wouldn't be like, I'm going to call someone. I'm going to be like, God, he's, there has to be some reason why this happened. I think I know this guy. I don't think he would be murdering, but. You wouldn't think. And so Ray makes a series of terrible choices, and suddenly he's burying a guy in the dead of night. That's one of the most haunting scenes in well, cinema yeah, for me. Well, yeah, because it uh, turns out Hedaya ain't all dead yet. That's when this movie still kinda, kind of alive. This turns from I think they had to intentionally put stuff like this in because it was starting to feel like such a comedy of errors, mm-hmm. with Neil Diamond blaring and Ray practically. They had to be restrained, to, I'm sure, to show a picture of Ray slipping in blood. That's about <laughs> the level he was at right here. Woo, woo, woo. We know the cones can go in that direction. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I had to imagine they're like, should, no. 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 Remember, this is a, yeah, we're making a crime movie here. And so I think to avoid thinking like, man, this Ray is just blundering everything, they had to get dark. Yeah. And things got dark quick. With that scene of Ray leaving the car to find, to dig a hole, coming back and finding the car empty. Oh, my God. It's, it's Jason. You know, mm, this is mm-hmm. this is a horror movie. This is slasher stuff. You come back and the thing that you've been keeping an eye on is gone. You know, oh my God, the killer's gone. Where is he? <laughs> That's suddenly this movie's dipping into 84 era horror movie stuff. And that's when it just jumps up like, yeah, yeah. to unbeatable levels for me. That scene is so gross and so, you know, you get a shovel dragging. Yeah. Shovel draggings only exist in horror movies. A, yeah, exactly. If people argue this isn't a horror movie, name a horror movie that has a guy. Nobody, nothing good ever happens when somebody drags a shovel on asphalt in the middle of the night. No less. No yeah. good result has come from shovel dragged on asphalt. That's a horror movie, <laughs> and this is a horror situation. Yet, as you said, pilfering from their own footage, this is a situation that many other cohen characters have been in right this is a thing they would go back to especially fargo the lights approaching on a deserted road oh yeah oh yeah it's pretty much straight out of that scene in fargo where they shoot the cop and then have to drag the body but this time at least he doesn't get seen um but it's it's just classic tension building yeah it's so suspenseful it's so disturbing that's when i feel bad for hedaya because you just see him as this human being who's just now crawling trying to survive yeah and Uh, it gets worse and it gets worse (laughs) then we're out in a potter's field somewhere Uh, that scene that scene is tough and uh yeah the actual burying of the guy who's still alive is just like burying a living man how the hell it's that it's that human disconnect of john getz didn't have the guts to cave his head in with a shovel. Right. But he can somehow bury a man who he can hear screaming. Oh, those screams are bad. Those screams are haunting. You get that great, almost last-minute, completely unprecedented Marty comeback. Yeah. With the forgotten pistol. The the gun ended up in his pocket, yeah, because they thought he was dead. 
Oh my god! And then yeah, he almost gets him there. Almost comes cool back, moment. directly transitioning to being buried alive. Still gets buried. Worst. Still, but even in his kind of half alive, has the presence of mind to put his hand over his face to keep the dirt off of his. Yeah, head. it's so scarily human the way marty's acting and this guy that you've been treating as a dead body but yeah could still plausibly be alive it was a gut shot if reservoir dogs taught me anything you can last a long time on a gut shot right but oh it was just this human using any kind of strength that he had it's like man these movies tones are hitting me left right we just had this scene with a neil diamond blood cleanup now we get a buried alive man oh (laughs) <laughs> this movie's taking me places. And you just see how this trust is disowed because you get one of the most uncomfortable conversations ever with him and Abby. Yeah, he, he returns after uh, after burying a man. He returns back to Abby thinking she's the one that shot him. And he's, yeah. he's playing it. This the, the, the conversation between them at that point is almost like uh, Lost, the TV show, levels of like, just say what you're talking about. Yeah. Because well, he's like, doesn't matter what we did. All that matters is what we do now. And she's like, what? Don't I know what the truth I is. I don't know what you're what, talking about, yeah. Ray. It's <laughs> don't this. act like you don't know what I'm talking about. And it's just like, please, somebody just say it is two people what's on your mind. Acting like they're talking about the same thing, but both parties have entirely different sets of information. Yeah. And so it's this worst conversation and so frustrating. And that's the best callback in the movie. I love this so much. Because it goes back to that Hadea. Uh, gets conversation out on by the incinerator. Right. That's another thing that felt Lynch. Lynch would have something with an incinerator in the back of a bar. <laughs> totally. That's a God. <laughs> that guy's a ripoff artist. Um, when Dan Hedaya's his one kind of moment of glory, his one little bit of dignity that he actually finally seems like he's getting to somebody is when he's actually gets Ray's attention. And starts telling him about the things that he can expect from Abby. Right, right. That's kind of that one scene where you're like, you know, this guy may be right. I don't want to side with this guy, but he's making a lot of interesting points. Mm -hmm. Well, he gets in Ray's head for sure. Yeah. So Ray's thinking, what twisted shit does Abby pull to control her men and to uh-huh. ruin people's lives eventually and what we don't know whether Dan, we don't know whether Hade is BSing him or not. Right. Because he's doing the like, you think you're the only guy? Right. He's doing what could be seen as a low tactic, a last resort, to really get into his head, trying to make him doubt himself. That's all he has left. It works. And it works. <laughs> and I, that line with Dan Hadea, the quietest he is in the movie going the funniest thing, though, is that day she's going to turn to you and say, I don't know what you talk about, Ray. I haven't done anything funny. And when she says it in the exact same way that Dan Adea says it, it's so good. You could see Ray's brain break. Yeah. he, he gives, That John, just ruins Ray as a man right there. The best part of the whole John Getz performance is that when he's just like, oh, <laughs> just like holy shit (laughs) it happened already yeah we're already there it's one day later and we're there the one moment that i was warned about and it's played so good it sounds oh she says it so perfectly it's like i never i didn't see that actually coming and you just forget about it enough 
And she says it so exactly the same that your brain is immediately like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And she's perfect because she's innocent. She's genuinely innocent that we know of. We don't know how much Dan Hedaya is telling the truth. She did not shoot Marty. We know that much at least. No crimes that we know of. She has that going for her. And everybody else we've seen is in the crimes. Making lots of crime. And she's not. Oh. Just these uh, these two people that need to communicate better. <laughs> Seriously. We talked about the deeply communicative uh, manhunter. Open communication. <laughs> relationship. <sighs> Ray and Abby do not have that yet. And this movie breaks down into... <sighs> this is like a time capsule kind of long played out finish for me. Maybe my favorite finish in cinema. Just because... Oh, God. I loved watching this for the first time in a theater of old people. You've never seen so many butts squirming in seats <laughs> as when you get the final showdown yeah. with Ray, Abby, and Lauren, who realizes that there's evidence attaching him to that scene. Everybody thinks they have evidence attached to that scene, except Abby, who doesn't know what the scene is. Who doesn't know what the fuck is going on. (laughs) Everybody has entirely different information that all plausibly leads them to the exact same spot. Right. Oh, that scene in the inner buildings in this movie. God, it reminds me of that same blue velvet architecture where the final shootout at Frank's warehouse compound is. A lot of brick... And a lot of broken glass. Right. You look inside of Abby's, I don't know. She's in some kind of warehouse. Factory warehouse, uh, penthouse. Yeah. Loft loft. space. Yeah. It's a lot of brick and a lot of big, beautiful window architecture. Big open windows. Nobody Nobody puts a fucking curtain on any window in this movie. Not a curtain to to be found. John Getz is just sleeping in his little twin bed right next to a window with no curtain. Have you seen a smaller bed than John Getz's (laughs) bed in this movie? This is a man who's been sleeping alone for a long time. Yeah, this is a confirmed. This is a one user kind of a thing. bed. Yeah, that is pushed up right next to his window, the window that faces out onto the street, and the bed is high enough to be directly at window level. Like he is basically, yeah. You can see this man sleeping in his bed from the street. <laughs> <laughs> no curtain. This is the least private sleeping man you've ever seen. This is a private investigator's dream yeah we need you to get a photo you mean a photo of that man (laughs) just right over there completely out for the next 12 hours and no idea that we're right next to the window the heaviest sleeper (sighs) gets is he is a bad man to be seen it's funny and yeah her 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 apartment's the same way it's just like you can see the entire apartment from Across the street. If you're across the way and she has the lights on, you know everything that's happening in her loft. And it comes down to all these characters needing to find each other. And that is just the best suspense. The final 10 minutes of this movie is just grinding suspense. I don't think Hitchcock ever did it better. The fact that this was done as their first movie, like directors would kill for a set piece and a bit of tension and this kind of almost stage play intensity from this final scene. And it's Absolutely. all built on people not knowing where the other person was and what their motivation is. You have M.M. Walsh staked out across the street, and you get the great visuals from everybody's vantage point. Mm-hmm. The parts you can't see, the parts you can see, the breakdown is so good. What a great set piece. 
Great piece. And at the end, she still never sees him. Yeah, and she has no Walsh. idea who he is. She hears him once. Yeah, she hears. Uh, she hears him walking. You know, yeah. The whole it's all. It's like I don't want to spoil it for people if they haven't seen it because you've got to watch this whole scene. Yeah. But it's always through walls, and 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 the guys in the other room, and and so she actually doesn't know still who this guy is. Yeah, she's who's trying to. She kill doesn't. Her, who's she's in her not one hundred percent sure Marty's dead. Right. Because she's because John Getz is so bad at communication that he never said what happened. Yeah, she's just like I think I think Marty and Ray had a fight. Seems like something bad happened. Yeah, because Ray is just won't stop talking nonsense and looks like he's Ray looks like buried. death. Ray, Ray looks like he's buried a man. Ray came home looked like he buried a man alive the other day. <laughs> I felt like you almost went with a Ray Bob right there. Because I like that the movie drops us one Ray Bob. Oh yeah. When <laughs> when Maurice goes, "Look, I don't know what your business is, Ray Bob." <laughs> like, "Wait, oh, it's Ray Bob?" Everybody's been everybody's been name. on a, a three-letter basis with Ray yeah. for this whole duration. Ray Ray Bob is yeah, his friends. Man, I don't like you said, this scene I can't spoil in good faith. But when I was watching it in the theater and that hand was reaching around the the corner and that knife was coming into view, it was a theater full of all old people doing verbal like no 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 right right <laughs> like oh no oh no oh no oh no it was no. such it, the mood of the theater was that mood where you're getting to the top part of the roller coaster and it's slowing down and it's just this like no 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 yeah. no 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 like how would I end up here right he, yeah there's this like he's like got this struggling happening and it's just like click 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 click. <laughs> That, for as beautiful as the color is that M. Emmett Walsh adds to this movie, all of his dialogue, this scene of him pressed into a wall, the ultimate man's struggle, the rock in a hard place, in in flesh, I think that's his most powerful stuff. He goes into beast mode. His beast, M. Emmett Walsh beast mode. This just like, like, oh my gosh, so perfect. So these, awesome. I don't know what if they built these sets and who had the idea for them. If this was an actual building, I don't know what. I don't really want to know. I just love every second of how it looked. This big, way larger than it needed to be bathroom. Yeah. In Abby's beautiful loft apartment. Such an odd. The whole apartment's really strange. Quite and strange. This, I love in the last like 20 minutes, you get M.M. at Walsh breaking into like 30 different windows. <laughs> this guy is just like, I don't care. I'm breaking any amount of windows I need. <laughs> I'm getting to my target. Exactly. When in doubt, break a window. But yeah, the gorgeous shot of M.M. at Walsh firing through a wall and the pins of light coming through and Abby's face in her perfect jeans and sweater home loft look. <laughs> but that finish where you know she shoots this it's terminator man Mm -hmm. this poor woman she thinks this terminator's coming after her she's suddenly linda hamilton same same feathered hair yeah really same year looked a lot like her you could (laughs) yeah you know i could see that and it suddenly becomes this whole other thing and it's this women's struggle it's this woman's empowerment thing this movie is just like god this movie's making me feel every damn witch away <laughs> but that final scene with her and mm at walsh and that's our final instance <laughs> of neil diamond 
the weirdest. When I saw her face, I thought love. You get this great Coen Brothers shot that's kind of the establishing shot that it's like this is what the, this is the kind of thing these guys are going to be doing for the next thirty years. Is M. Emmett Walsh shot pretty much exact same place he shot Marty, looking up at this sink with the most confusing set of pipes. Under yeah. the sink that you have ever seen. This is a one-unit stand-up sink in a bathroom, and there's like 15 different <laughs> pipes wrapping around each other. This should be one pipe. should be one pipe going one pipe, into a guys. wall. And there's like snaking around each other with a bunch of different knobs. And it's M-M- the shot of M.M. Walsh looking up and just kind of just like, what's the deal with these pipes up here? Yeah. Like, why is this poor man just forced? Not, that's his Not cont- the last thing you want to see yeah, his, before you die. He realizes as he's died, he got shot because he mistaken identity. And now I'm just getting perplexed by these dripping pipes. <laughs> oh. It's absurd. And you get that, oh. It's such a powerful women's moment when she finally takes down her tormentor and immediately gets thrown into confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and then Neil plays us out. Plays literally Neil Diamond plays us to black. Plays us plays us over the credits. Oh God. I can't wait for all the Neil Diamond to be inserted throughout this. <laughs> so okay. That was Blood Simple. That was Blood Simple. Oh. It came to this, but that was a special part of the show. Where this is our final bonus feature for our fiftieth anniversary spectacular. <laughs> for only the second time ever in fifty episodes, we are doing a ranked list. You can go check our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood list to find our list of top 10 Quentin Tarantino movies ranked, each individually, without any insight into the other's list. Absolutely. It was a cold reveal, and I think we're going to do the same here, right? 10 to 1? Yeah. Do we want to do like 10 to 5 each and then 5 to 1 each? Or I should be going one, just... to 1 to 1, 10 to 10, 9 to 9. Okay. This is tough. This was really tough. There's 18 official Coen Brothers movies. And there's not a one that I dislike. So this was eight difficult. I'm gonna grab a pen because I need to. You need to. You don't. You don't have the rankings. That's the whole thing. No, I. There's a. <laughs> I, I made like an arrow and stuff, so I just don't. Want, if we're going one to one, I don't want to. Uh, like I'm gonna go as I go. Got it. So I don't screw it up. All right. I have no. <laughs> this, this is, like is great. Po- uh, this is on a post-it note for me too. I'm. So. Pr- I, I have my field notes. I. I'm pretty sure that going into the Tarantino list, I had a a decent idea of what you would also have. I, I kind of closely guessed your list. Our lists were not too dissimilar, and we had a lot of matching. This one, I have no idea where you could be going on this. Do you have any idea with me? Because yours is... I have no idea what you'll have uh, in this top ten. No, I, I mean, I have an idea what your number one might be. I think I think we just talked about it for an hour and twenty minutes, but we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. We talked earlier about there's going to be some movie that one of us has at like five, and yep. the other person's like, "Oh yeah, I didn't have that one. <laughs> I don't know what it is we'll yet." We'll see. Though. We'll see. Uh, what's your ten? Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, were my ten. My nine, the man who wasn't there. Hmm. My nine is a serious man. Okay. Okay. What's your eight? No country for old men. A lot of men in yours. Coen Brothers do a lot of man movies. <laughs> my eight is Inside Lewin Davis. Nice. Uh, my seven 
Hail Caesar. Perfect. My seven is burn after reading. Okay. Here's where we come to it. I don't know if you'll have Hail Caesar after this, and I don't want to know until it's revealed. You don't know if I have burn after reading, but I think those are two movies in my head where I was like, one or two of these could be represented or not represented on each. For me, the one through seven on this was was pretty easy. The eight through 13 was really tough. Right. Those cuts. So yes, Hail Caesar's my seven. What was yours? Burn After Reading's my seven. Okay. What's your six? Raising Arizona. My six is Barton Fink. There you go. Okay. My five, No Country for Old Men. My five is The Big Lebowski. Okay. A little lower than probably a lot of people's list. Perhaps. What's your four? Inside Llewellyn Davis is number four. Okay. I'm Llewellyn. <laughs> Llewellyn. Llewellyn Davis. Doug Llewellyn was the people's court. <laughs> Inside Llewellyn Davis, uh, I love, but I have no idea who the main character's name is. That's your number <laughs> That's four. your number four. That's my four. My number four, a serious man. Nice. I'm happy that was on your top ten. How many other Coen Brothers movies have the genius of... Cy Abelman? (laughs) (laughs) I think Cy Abelman is my favorite. Cy Abelman pushed this up to number four. I love Michael Stuhlbarg. He's a friend of the podcast. Absolutely. uh, (laughs) But Cy Abelman. He's a dear friend. So, okay. My number three, The Big Lebowski. Nice. My number three is Blood Simple that we just talked about. Okay. Number two. Uh, this is the one I think will surprise a lot of people, and so I want to do two, I'm try- two sentences of, of I'm looking at my list and trying to cross off what I haven't heard from you, and there's a few, All but right. I don't, it might not be one of those. My number two, and this is, uh, I will explain, my number two is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay. It was uh, late 90s. I was a teenager. I was <laughs> not supposed to like George Clooney. I was sure. not supposed to like musical. You would have been like 16 or 17 yeah. when that came out. Saw it in the theater and uh, adore it. I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I was a regular attendee of the Rialto then, Summerfield. Yeah, yeah. That's where I saw it. One. That's where I saw it, for sure. On my birthday, this movie was out. And I wanted to see it and another movie. But I could only pick one. It was my birthday, and we were going to this movie, me and my girlfriend at the time, before dinner. I picked Requiem for a Dream. Ah, great birthday movie. What an uplifting <laughs> flick to celebrate uh, my 20th year. Nicely done. Went back the next week and saw Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But oh my gosh, what an evening ruiner sitting through that uh, misery fest. Right. That's great. Oh, yeah. That's so, good. yeah. that's So, yeah, number two, Oh Brother, m- almost more because... I expected to not like it when I watched it. Interesting. And then loved it. Yeah, that really, uh, that was the movie that, that really propped up the Coen Brothers cottage industry of, you know, that that was so popular that it spawned a tour. Ralph Stanley oh, yeah. and all that music, those people went on an Oh Brother, Where Art There tour. Like this was, uh, you know, Gareth, Gareth Keeler, you know, that, like uh, well, yeah, you had, you <laughs> Prairie Home up, Companion or you something. Brought up uh, Garrison Keeler. T-Bone Burnett earlier talking uh, about Coen Brothers. And yeah, this is, I mean, that con- Man of Constant Sorrow song was huge. Yeah. Big time. Yeah, it's crazy looking back at 2000, how culturally big 
man of constant sorrow was from that I think, movie. I think you trace a lot of indie folk back to Oh Brother Where Art Thou, honestly. And like, oh, totally. It, it, it taking things that people like John Prine were still doing at the time, but taking that and just being like, everyone will like this if you just yeah. put it in a good movie. So but this, anyways, you're this, number two. This is going to be big because this will both reveal, I think, your number one and what isn't on my top ten. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. my number two is Fargo. Yeah. Uh, I noticed you hadn't said it. I was expecting either that or the Lady Killers <laughs> exactly. coming up next. I thought you were going Lady Killers on that last one. He brought his bitch to the Waffle House. Yeah. When you were like, this will surprise the people. I was like, He's, he put the fucking Lady Killers <laughs> at number two. He did it. No, no. He did it. And so my number one is Blood Simple. Yeah. And my number one, yeah, is probably a lot of Cohen brother people would say is fargo i think i think fargo is god it's you, so you, good you did a you or you do like best of the decades we, we you know we were talking about best of the last decade yeah i gotta think fargo might be my best of the 90s yeah it's my favorite fargo if it's my favorite if it's the perfect blend of the really really funny comedy <laughs> the really dark violence the mystery francis mcdormand mm-hmm William H. Macy's performance Everybody. in that thing is on eight different levels. It's uh, it's fantastic. Oh, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. Can't Fargo. You know, it wouldn't take much for me to flip Fargo and Blood Simple on my list. Blood yeah. Simple, I just have that personal connection to. Exactly. Right. And uh, feel like it's one that I just And Blood Simple is s- my three. I, I yeah. Think, I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone, uh, you know, a filmmaker who had a stronger debut than coen brothers with with blood simple yeah i uh what this reveals and uh that means that i did not have oh brother where art thou that's true and that would be the movie that i kept getting shocked that i was not putting it on the 10 when i had the list written out of what my options were and i kept skipping that that's the one where i'm going man i'm still not putting this i'm still not putting this like yeah not a diss to that movie because oh man, I watched the hell out of that movie when it well, came out. Well, and I have Hail Caesar crossed out, so it made. Oh, the top you didn't 12. have Caesar, yeah, yeah, yeah. And True Grit was crossed out. True Grit was on the list you there know, before I True remembered. Grit, the Coen Brothers Arizona. catalog is so strong that True Grit was a movie that I enjoyed greatly when I saw it in the theater when it came out. Haven't watched it since. Was never a threat to my top ten. Yeah, their catalog is so deep. <laughs> That I, right out the gate, I'm like, well, I know I'm not putting this, this, and this. And uh, that's not as dismissive as it sounds. Right, right. Their catalog, when I'm already having to cut half of them, there's just some that are going to be easier cuts. Hail Caesar for me, <laughs> I'm probably the high vote on Hail Caesar. I think a lot of people, I don't think that if you if we looked at Rotten Tomatoes, if we looked at online IMDb consensus, uh, Hail Caesar's probably in the lower quarter. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love the settings. It's got that weird uh, mysticism element of Big Lebowski that we only briefly get into with like Jackie Treehorn's place. Sure, sure, yeah. And I just love... This is probably the same reason you have Burn After Reading on yours. I didn't have it on mine. Another close cut. Laughed my butt off when I saw that movie in the theater. I thought I think it's I, that one I've seen a few times now. And again, Francis McDormand's hilarious. Oh yeah, but we get Everybody. now two different movies where just the idiocy of George Clooney 
in Coen Brothers movies. There's yeah. so many examples of that perfect kind of Clooney idiocy. And I kind of knew when it came down to it, I was like, it's going to be one of these Clooney idiot movies that gets cut. Like, we're each going to have different ones of those. Because it feels, it's more of a matter of preference at that oh, point. Yeah. I actually totally forgot Clooney was even in Hail Caesar. Yeah. That's funny. Um, and he's oh, a yeah. dummy. He's an unsuspecting dummy, dummy who's easily convinced of stuff. Just like the the guy in O oh Brother. And, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. The burn after reading, when, when he panic shoots Brad Pitt in the face <sighs> in the closet, I mean, that was that was a moment where I was watching the movie and it just went, blah, blah. You know, it was just like. The two it hunkiest me. men in Hollywood. As idiots, yeah, in a movie is beautiful. Oh man, I mean Everything the reveal. I am already kicking myself for not having this in the top ten, just because the <laughs> reveal of the dildo chair is one of the most absurd Coen Brothers elements. The whole ever. burn after reading tickled me so much because they were just flat out like, "This doesn't mean anything." Yeah, this is just us taking it, taking the piss. The whole wraparound with J.K. Simmons, I think, being like. Uh, the the high government agent yeah. who's just like what what is this bring so it, it back was, when it makes sense J.K. Simmons and this is a guy I think this is his only Cohen's role David Rashi he I know infam- I know the guy I can see him yeah he infamously played Sledgehammer the TV cop one of my favorite nice. uh, 80s comedies and it's him and yeah him and J.K. Simmons as just confused basement living fbi just like right. so none of this means anything <laughs> like it's this that per- so we didn't really need to do anything here <laughs> exactly just that. I love it. it's just the perfect summation of the whole movie like i said so tough to cut that off to we didn't uh, we've spent so much time talking about this a couple things i want to give reason to yeah hail caesar i love the I love the communism of it. I love that it finally did one of these Cold War kind of comedies way better than that. What Steven Spielberg? What was that? Nineteen forty-two. Right, that right, one. Right, right. A lot of people like that. That's kind of a it, that's a I cult know. movie. Yeah. It's a big, weird, silly romp that is way too long. And this kind of for me is like, oh, this is probably the same people that like nineteen forty-two. I'm liking this element out of Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. It just. God, I love it. It has a lot of similarities to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for me, where we're getting this super grand, with a wink, look behind the scenes at this era of Hollywood. Yeah, kind of I a do sucker like that. for that. I do like that a lot. I do, yeah. And Barton Fink is one of those movies. Uh, I'm actually surprised I had that and Lewin Davis on my list because I kind of view those the same. A struggling artist who's facing that question of compromising his art mm-hmm. or just moving on with it. And Barton Fink probably is the Coen Brothers movie that keeps going up higher and higher the more I experience it. And every time I watch it, it goes up higher. Yeah. And so I just I love Lewin Davis, uh, even though I've only seen it once. And Barton Fink, though, is like just... I slightly like the Lewin Davis aesthetics of it more mm-hmm. for similar stories. And yeah, Serious Man, Cy Abelman. That pumps it up to the top five. Serious Man is a great movie because it it, uh, it tries, it almost has that like nothing matters kind of vibe to it. But then um, it really makes you care about the characters just in time to <laughs> n- 
ruin all like it's like one of those where you don't really like anyone until about an hour in and then that's when everyone's life just falls apart and it's just like what the fuck man what's wrong with you guys i love it a serious man so when i did my big 90s uh list as part of my movie group big lebowski was my number one and fargo was in the top five Mm -hmm. at this point big lebowski i've probably seen more than any of them and maybe it suffers because of that Maybe it suffers because uh, it's no longer me watching it alone in the school library. Now it's the most adored movie in their canon, and yeah. I don't. I can't say to that. I don't know. I'm not usually that type of guy, but it's such a meme at this point, right? It's a such lot of a, it is. It's such a and I. But I can also still experience joy from it. Oh yeah, I still oh, yeah. love it for sure, and that's why it's my number three. There but you go. Fargo, I figured is for such a more mainstream accepted movie at the time, Oscar winning movie. It's just such, it's so good. It's so flawless. Things that I used to be confused by only seem so much better to me now. Like the Mike Yanagita scene. Yeah. The, the scene that is so seemingly out of place and yet is the key to unlocking. Once I cracked Yanagita, it was just like, Oh, it's perfect. That's yeah. right. I understand everything now. That was Mike Yanagita, man. That was my key in the Radisson. It was like, oh. it was just that's. It was like it took that for the the small town cop to be like, oh, people lie. Yeah, <laughs> these the guy, nice people, these well-meaning people. The guy who's been, you know, I've been talking to has been lying. Yeah, he's not Ding. a bad guy, but things went bad somewhere. Right, things went slightly different degrees of sour. And it's so once you crack Yanagita, it just unlocks the Coens. It's everything. I think so. But yeah, <laughs> this was good. Man, we're we're going to do we, probably we all these movies. Not, we have to rank Coen Brothers characters, I think. <sighs> because when you just said that, you crack Yanagita, you crack, you <laughs> you crack, crack the Coens. <laughs> like, holy shit, is he the, is he the best character? Is he no. the character? <laughs> I'm Cy Abelman, then I'm Yanagita. Period. <laughs> that's oh, great. That's it. I think it came to this. It came to this, man. This was expansive. This was in episode 50. This was beautiful. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I did too. Guys, see Blood Simple. Do it. And uh, tell us what your favorite Coen Brothers movies are. Even if you don't see the one with the Neil Diamond, if you see the one with the Smash Mouth version of the song, (laughs) the only one they could license. Don't rent rent Shrek. That's the wrong (laughs) movie. So yeah, you're going to see, unless you're a dummy that has a Laserdisc player or a VHS, yeah, and you can watch Blood Simple that way, you're going to see the director's cut. You won't get, you just won't get that same level of joy. Come on over to my place. Exactly. We'll crank the VHS. It's the only way to watch this one. <laughs> watch it. It came to this, episode 50. Thank you guys who have been listening and, and continue to listen. We're having a great time with this, and hopefully you're enjoying it as well. No signs of slowing so, down. Thank you, and good night. Thank you.